Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need money. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week for Motley Fool Funds, Bill Mann and Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here, gents. Glad to be here. It is our 2015 preview show. A lot of things to get to, including, of course, reckless predictions and stocks on our radar. But, Tim, let's start with Russia. And I, I hasten to point out we're taping this a couple of days before the show is going to air. We're and, starting cheerful, though. And since we're starting with Russia, it kind of seems like anything goes at this point. But when you combine the ruble falling to the degree that it has and the central bank recently raising its key interest rate from 10.5% to 17%. My first question is, is this every bit as bad as it seems? Because from where I sit, this seems really bad. Yeah, this is this is a very tough situation for them. Um, some domestic commentators are, are predicting a uh, fiscal crisis next year. I'm not sure what that looks like. That's worse than what they have today, but a crisis next year. And then, you you know, you, the other point being oil prices. Obviously, oil is key. Exporting oil is key to Russia's economy. And uh, oil prices have fallen dramatically, so that cuts off a key source of revenue for them. And apparently, um, several news outlets are reporting that Russia is unwilling to um, shut down some production because they're worried that due to the, the, um, the poor state of those, that equipment, that they wouldn't be able to bring it back online. So that makes kind of forces their hand into being pretty irrational actors. So, you know, it, lo- it looks pretty bad. Um, it, it always probably always looks worse than it will turn out to be. But certainly a, a number of challenges for that economy and the, the central bank there has already had to step in and bail out a couple of banks now. So it, m- mostly bad news. Here's the thing. In 1998, Russia was also in a crisis during the Asian crisis. And uh Rates in Russia for some short-term loans were 150%, and now they're at 17%. There is a crisis going on in Russia, but you know, if you're looking for a political crisis, I don't think we're anywhere close to the conditions you know by which that would happen. Russians really go through economic uh, conditions that would take down governments in the in the West. They are very much accustomed to economically struggling. They are not so accustomed to economic prosperity. So I, I think that what is happening in Russia is bad, but I don't think that extrapolating to this being a crisis for Putin is, uh, is a good idea. So are there investment opportunities in Russia that you're looking at? Oh, God, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> So it's not at the point where you're willing to actually invest money. Do we look crazy? You know, I know this is radio, but do we look crazy? The uh, the Russian, you know, the Russian market is just, from our perspective, is is so uninvestable just for corporate governance reasons. Yeah. And, and when you bring those into account, valuation kind of ceases to matter because you know there's really no price you'd pay for someone who's got a very good chance of wasting your money or not returning your right. money to you. Um, you know, having said, there there are a few reasonable companies in Russia, a handful. Um, you know, Sparebank is one we've mentioned in the past, one we've written about in our shareholder letters. We think it's a pretty a pretty well run bank that's that's priced to be as it is operating in a really really tough environment. But you know, as Bill noted, there's not really a political crisis here. Um, you know, if oil comes back and, and stabilizes and, and things work out in the Ukraine, I mean, there's an opportunity and some of these sanctions are lifted. There's clearly an opportunity for the Russian economy to get back on to sounder footing. And so uh, if you, you know, a well-run bank like Sparebank trading at the valuation it is looks interesting, you know, but it's certainly not, you know, in, in a lot of these situations, 
people might just go in and you know just buy the ETF, buy the whole market. You know, don't worry about picking companies because it'll all bounce back at You're some point. You're getting a lot of stuff when you do that. Yeah, but that, that's not. <laughs> I don't think that's an approach in Russia that's uh, yeah. that's worth taking. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you touched on the recent plunge in oil prices, and it really does seem like, certainly in the Middle East. Uh, I don't want to use the word panic, but it seems like there is a great deal of fear going on. With that, are there opportunities for investors, or is this another situation where you really want to see things stabilize first? No, I think uh, I think crises are where bargains come from in general. I mean, the uh, uh, several of the Middle Eastern markets have gone up double digits this week. You know, they're up uh, ten and you know ten and twelve percent. I think Dubai was like up fifteen percent over over the week prior to uh, prior to Christmas. So, I mean, they are they, they are adjusting. They have plenty of cash in a lot of these uh, in, in in a lot of these markets. I think you have to look at the fact that oil is truly the biggest boom and bust industry that we have, and I think some of the oil services companies are just unbelievably cheap now. And the reason they're cheap is that people tend to extrapolate and investors tend to extrapolate. They don't know when oil prices are going to come back up, but what you have now is oil companies yanking back their capital expenditure program and what that means is that there's going to be less oil. So there may be a lot of $100 oil. I don't think that there's that much $60 oil in the ground. And that's I think what you got to focus on. Yeah, I mean people are pointing to China slowing and and it's true that China's economy is slowing on a percentage basis, but you know, its net consumption of barrels of oil continues to increase even if it's increased at a sl- somewhat slower rate. Yeah. I mean, it's still a big number. Um, and as Bill pointed out, the supply de- supply and demand dynamics tend to solve themselves in situations like this, you know. And ultimately, you know, we're going to find out about how how um, how committed you know shale producers in the U.S. are to continuing to produce in the face of some price difficulties. You know, this is a cyclical industry. We had a period of high prices um, that created a lot of investment, created yeah. a lot of jobs in the United States. People were very excited about it. And then you end, you, you end up driving down the, 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 the price as a result of that. But it, it does generally correct over time. And I think, I think Bill's right to say that um, some of the service companies do look particularly interesting. Yeah. 40% of the jobs that have been created in the United States over the last six years have been in Texas alone. And that's really been driven by energy. So, you know, we're just on the backside of that right now. A lot of the work that you guys do at Motley Fool Funds is looking at international investment opportunities. I'm curious, as we head into 2015, what are a couple of markets that you're interested in? I think from a from a there might be opportunity perspective. Um, Brazil, I find intriguing. I think it's I like Latin America for a variety of reasons. I think you know governance down there is pretty good. Um, well, there are a lot of people. That's an easy observation to make, but you know it's true. Demographics. <laughs> you know there are a lot of Brazilians. <laughs> Demographics are good. Valuations are depressed. Um, so, I, and, and generally speaking, I think that's a good growth market um, as Latin America builds trade relationships both with North America and Asia. So that's an interesting place to start looking for exposure on the sort of be wary or on the downside side. Um, Australia looks a little concerning. Yeah. Um, obviously, they haven't had a housing bust there in, in decades. Uh, I think a lot of the stocks there are now trading on yield as people sort of speculate to get reap the last returns they can out of the stock market. And the banks, you know, there are a couple of big banks there that are hard to understand um, and could fare very poorly in, a, in an adverse environment that have been increasing their stock prices by driving up payout ratios. And their regulator has said they expect all those banks to need additional capital next year. So those look like the ingredients of a of a tough market, but it's hitting, you know, all time highs. 
Yeah. Uh, I've mentioned South Korea in the past. I still think that South Korea is a is a deeply inexpensive market. I think that uh, as we have gotten to be more knowledgeable of, of South Korea, there, 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 there are certain elements that, uh, that make me slightly more wary. Um, you know what we've, you know what what we find in in markets like South Korea and Japan is, uh, you know, is 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 similar. Is that there really truly is, a, you know, an informational disadvantage if you are if you are not from there, if you're not able to access the the documents in the local language. Um, but I still do think that it is a a really really inexpensive market. It is mischaracterized as an emerging market, uh, and it is a very developed market. I think emerging markets in general are, are 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 waiting for their time in the sun. I mean, they've underperformed. They underperformed historically in 2013, and they underperformed slightly in 2014. And these things do tend to come back into into equilibrium. What's an industry that you're focused on in 2015, Tim? You know, I think we hit upon it earlier, and it's it's energy. Um, I told all the guys we work with, you know, if you've got any extra time capabilities. Um, Start looking for energy firms because I mean, they've they've sold off on, you know on mass, and yeah. when that happens, there's always something that got thrown out with the bathwater. And you know, I'd prefer to find uh, a company with a balance sheet that it, that is able to withstand some short-term difficulty, and a, a, a management team that has a history of being opportunistic, either in terms of market share gains or acquisitions or those sorts of things, where you can kind of create double value. Um, when the market is down, to realize that upside as it inevitably rebounds. Double value is so much better than single value. Boom! Like twice <laughs> as much. What about you? Trademark. So I, I actually agree with what Tim said. I want to. I very specifically will look at the oil services companies. I think those are those are companies that we have a little bit of a better of a handle on than the companies that are actually out doing the uh, the drilling, the exploration, and the production companies. They have a little bit more political exposure, uh, you know. And while the 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 services companies have more exposure to, you know, the raw price of the product, the econo- the economics of, you know, of of, of the oil sector uh, in general, and obviously that's been quite depressed. And so we specifically, we like to get to know a lot more industries, but I think that that's one that we have more of a grasp on. And I think so specifically, you know, oil services uh, companies are quite cheap. Are you guys expecting consolidation? In oil services, I think inevitably. I mean, as these cycles play out, generally speaking, you know, people who have money take the opportunity to to grow their operations. I mean, there are companies like National Oil, Well Varco. Um, you know, there are, there are EMP companies who use it to buy distressed fields, distressed assets. I mean, this happens all the time in the space, and I would expect people with cash to go out and try to find uh, and try to put that cash to use. I mean, that's why they've. That's why they saved it. All right, last question before we go to break. One big question you have going into 2015. It can be about a company, an industry, a market, a CEO. Tim Hansen. Uh, you know, Bill alluded to this earlier as well, and, and it's what, when is when are emerging markets going to close this performance gap against developed market? I mean, it, at some point, it becomes. I mean, it's nonsensical. I mean, the demographics favor emerging markets. The growth trends favor emerging markets. The leverage ratios favor emerging markets. And yet investors, time and time again, are voting to put money to work in developed markets. Now, obviously, the U.S. maintaining such a accommodative interest rate environment contributes to that. 
you know, but at some point, I mean, it's like a coiling spring. At some point, they're going to come back. I don't know if it's 2015 or oh, maybe the question is, what do they need to do right. to get someone to recognize what, what, what's going on there? But it's been an interesting distortion in the markets the last few years. Yeah. I, in fact, the distortions have become a little bit different between this year and last year. Last year, it was developed markets outperforming, developing markets underperforming. This year, we have a huge gap everywhere from the S&P 500 companies and Japan versus everywhere else. Uh, small cap companies domestically have underperformed. Every other market, the European markets, uh, the emerging markets, everything else has underperformed those three. And for slightly different reasons, but there has to be an equal equilibrium restored. And it could be that everything else catches up, or it could be that we are in for a drop for the Dow, the S&P 500, you know, and perhaps for other reasons, Japan. And to me, that's a big question because that gap's going to get solved one way or the other. I mean, there was, I think there was almost no way to beat the S&P 500 this year. No. Like, you know, without just faking targeted bets on the S&P 500 because it's so dramatically kicked butt. Yeah. Yeah. The rotation between 2013 and 2014 has been amazing. In 2013, about, you know, the average energy company in the S&P 500 went up 34%. So how did you win in 2014? You were heavy in in energy. You would have really, really, really have been, you know, had to have been a genius market timer to get out of energy 2013 coming into 2014. But I don't recall any uh, predictions at the beginning of 2014 that said that oil would be $60 a barrel now. I just, I, I don't think they exist. Coming up, reckless predictions and stocks to watch in 2015. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Bill Mann and Tim Hansen from Motley Fool Funds. All right, Tim, who needs 2015 to be big? It can be a company, it could be a CEO. Who needs a big 2015? Uh, I think Twitter needs a big 2015. Twitter had a, had a very mild uh, 2014. I believe its stock was down a little more than 40%. There were that's bad, right? That's bad. I, That's yeah. bad. Uh, there were many accusations made about the competency of its leadership and founder group. Um, they have struggled with executive retention. They have struggled with new member acquisition. Uh, they have studied with engaging new members in terms of their platform. And you know they are getting some traction with spending on 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 from advertisers, and it's, it continues to be a really interesting platform. But I mean, I think they need to do something, something. You know, worthwhile in 2015 to sort of show the promise of that company. I hear that their new plan is to go to 146 characters. Game changer. Boom. Who needs a big 2015, Bill? Sony. Sony needs a big 2015. I mean, they have. I mean, you want to talk about a company that has, you know, that 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 has, in a lot of ways, shown a lot of the a, a lot of the weakness of the cor- corporate networking that we have now. And the more I read about how people, how the hackers got into Sony, I mean, it was just it was just brute force. They weren't they weren't using the new stuff. And Sony was somewhat lackadaisical. I mean, allegedly, uh, you know, at their uh, their corporate security, and they need a win. They really, really need a win because some of the ex- the expenses that they spent on the interview are not coming back, and you know I don't know what they'll be able to recover in terms of uh, you know in terms of uh, you know an eventual release of that itself. But I don't know that there's a company right now being more watched than Sony is. 
one reckless prediction for 2015. Tim Hanson, what do you got? I think the uh, I think the iWatch flops and causes markets to go into a whole nother self doubting period about Apple for a while. Wow, define flop. You know, I think I think it's going to get both poor reviews and poor sales. Wow, that's big. Nothing. That's my reckless. You know, I just you know because I've already the watches, the stuff's already out there. It's not like a new category like some of their previous products were. And um, the computer. Well, I mean, you know, like the the iPhone, the iPad. The iPod going way back. I mean, they didn't they didn't necessarily invent the category, but they were very early on in the birth of the category. Whereas it seems like smart. I mean, Fitbit, smartwatches, um, the stuff is out there, and I think people have already made up their minds I think about Apple's whether they're going to make one. a fortune in time. <laughs> Bill, man, one reckless prediction. I think 2015, we're going to start hearing about the the, the trends. Uh, pharmaceutical companies are going to start pushing something called poly pills, which are pills that have multiple. Uh, medicines, multiple uh, drugs inside of them, and it's going to allow them to extend the patents of a lot of their different blockbuster drugs now. Wow, that doesn't sound reckless at all. Sorry, I could be reckless. <laughs> that was I thought we were specifically asked to be reckless. Yeah, you were. Let's move along. We got about a minute Come on! left. Uh, one <laughs> stock you're watching, it can be in the short term or for all of 2015. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit already today, but energy services, uh, the stock is Core Labs, which is a uh, reservoir um, monitoring and enhancement company. Uh, basically, what that means is that people uh, use their technology to make sure that they get the most bang for their buck out of um, the reserves that they are drilling. Obviously, it's expensive technology, and the market is currently concerned that people won't want to pay up to buy it. But from an efficiency standpoint, their products and services make a whole lot of sense. And I think that uh, it, this is a stock that almost always looks expensive, and, and the market is giving people an opportunity. And the ticker? I believe it's CLB. Bill Mann, what's your stock? I'm watching Swatch. I mean, you want to be on the other side of the, uh, the, the, the iWatch trade. I mean, swatches as big of a you know they are a they are a great fashion company that's had a really poor 2014, and uh, you know I think that that's uh, every time there you know every time that there is a new technology that literally people say is going to take the place of watches. I mean, swatch has you know swatch has its own fashion company, but then it also does a lot of the gearing for a number of other Swiss brands, and I think that that's a company that uh, that is being really sold a little bit short right now. All right, Bill Mann, Tim Hanson, thanks for being here, guys. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Up next, we'll revisit our conversation with best-selling author John Lanchester about his latest book, How to Speak Money. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Best-selling author Michael Lewis calls our guest this week one of the world's great explainers of the financial crisis and its aftermath. John Lanchester is a regular contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books. His latest book is How to Speak Money, What the Money People Say and What It Really Means. And he joins me now from Motley Fool Studios in London. John, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Chris. Uh, what got you interested in this topic? It's a kind of spin-off, uh, or um, uh, the publisher wouldn't want me to put it like this, but it's a kind of benign tumour uh, that grew out of a novel I was writing. I was writing a novel about, about London called Capital, um, and I was very interested in the way that London has changed its and um, kind of 
altered over the years. And it occurred to me that one of the key drivers in that process has been what we call the city of London, which is you know, the equivalent of Wall Street and, and finance, which has got bigger and bigger as part of the national economy and the city's economy. And I got, I suddenly realised well, yeah, I can't actually understand the, this city and the, indeed the modern world without getting some sense of how finance works. So it, it grew really from there, from wanting to um, just understand the world of money and economics and, and, and how it works. One of the great examples that you give very early in the book comes out of the financial crisis, um, which is, and I, I, I had to write this down because this is something I would never remember on my own, a financial derivative uh, that played a role in the financial crisis, which is referred to as, and I'm quoting here, a vanilla mezzanine RMBS synthetic CDO. I know. I mean, I can understand how certain words evolve over time, but John, this sounds like something where people were going out of their way to create investment vehicles that made no sense whatsoever. That's right, Chris. And I think, you know, it's interesting. You, when you, whenever you have a book out, you, you're asked a question you aren't really expecting and, and, the, and, that it, and it keeps coming up. And the one that keeps coming up in re- relation to this is, is it deliberate? You know, I, I wasn't expecting that to be such a preoccupation, but lots of people are really interested in the fact of whether the kind of obfuscation that you're talking about, you know, synthetic CDSs, vanilla, mezzanine, synthetic, all that, whether in some sense it's intentional or whether it's kind of accidental byproduct of the of the complexity of the things they're talking about. And I, I, th- I think my view of that is, is that it doesn't really matter. You know, someone who's, the levels of language of that level of obscurity, you know, super synthetic CDSs made of synthetic c- CDOs based on RMBS, you know, is that a deliberate attempt to pull the wool over our eyes? Or is that just someone spouting super complex acronyms? And actually, it doesn't matter because if you're bamboozled and, you know, flummoxed and don't know where to begin to get your head around understanding these things, it doesn't really matter whether the person doing it to you is doing it on purpose or not. The net effect is that you, you can't even begin to follow what's being talked about. And then, of course, you know, there is a question about whether that the underlying complexity is so great that in a sense these things shouldn't exist and maybe it's too crude and too simple but there's something interesting about the idea that if you can't explain it simply that that product is actually too complicated well this investment vehicle aside you also write about words that have essentially come to mean the opposite Uh, this is a process that you refer to as reversification Um, and let's start with the word credit Credit is the real biggie, I think, because, you know, you don't have to be all that old to remember when there was this really scary, bad, negative thing called debt. And people were brought up thinking that they should avoid it. And they were brought up thinking that debt cast a shadow over your life. And if you had debt, that you were in a form of servitude, you know, you were working to pay off someone else and that debt was a bad thing and you shouldn't have it. And then suddenly... You know, it's difficult to put your finger on the exact change, but I think it happens probably some point in the 1980s. It turns out that there's this new thing, the financial service industry has a new thing, which is actually really great, which you want lots of, which opens up possibilities and expands your life and makes, you know, um, it possible to do things you wouldn't otherwise dreamed of. And this new thing is called credit, 
which of course is just debt. It's just it's magically turned into this other thing. And debt's associations are entirely negative. You know, etymologically, it's linked to ideas about owing, whereas credit is linked to belief and faith, and it's completely positive. And there's the gigantic explosion in in debt, which is, I think, you know, a Martian economist studying planet Earth's accounts would be the thing they were most struck by from about the 80s onwards, is just how debt, corporate, personal and governmental debt has rocketed. And I think a lot of that partly is just to do with this, what I call reversification of the thing that used to be called debt now turning into this thing called credit. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with John Lanchester. His new book is How to Speak Money, What the Money People Say and What It Really Means. It was this time, six years ago, that the financial crisis was unfolding. Now that you have six years worth of a rear view mirror. What is your main takeaway from the financial crisis? I think for a lot of people, the the sense I get is that it's actually still 2008. You know, we're still in that moment. Um, And that the various ways in which the system might have changed or reformed to have worked better for ordinary people haven't really happened. I think there's a really, really strong sense that we're like flies stuck in amber, you know, still in that moment i think that um of course if you talk to people inside the world of finance they say that's completely wrong there are 847 billion new rules uh, everything's changed it's you know there are plethora of new regulations and marginal changes and alterations and ba- you know i think banking's much less fun than it used to be people keep saying to which i say good for a start and also um, crucially that the big systemic changes haven't really happened i think you know, the reasons why another version of the crash couldn't come along again next week are hard to seek, really. Uh, so the the main thing I I feel about it, I think about it, is that the kinds of change that ought to have been implemented, not so much at the time of the bailout, because I think with even with the fully functioning rearview mirror, I think it's hard to see how the system didn't need rescuing. But the reform that should have happened afterwards just hasn't happened there's a gigantic missing piece which is that the the stuff that states collectively needed to do to fix this uh, didn't happen well and there also seems to be the ongoing challenge of dealing with innovation in the financial industry as well Uh, we had michael lewis uh, on the show recently he was talking about his uh, most recent book flash boys and one of the things he talked about was just how few people on wall street really understood what was going on with high-frequency trading. So, the lack of understanding was extending to senior executives uh, on Wall Street and presumably uh, in London in the city as well. Yeah, it's a strange... You know, the funny thing is, once you educate yourself more about this stuff, things don't necessarily seem less surprising. Sometimes the more you find out about it, the more surprising things it are. And I think that you know, never fails. To, I, I can't quite get my head around this thing about these gigantic, systemically central, publicly underwritten institutions, the banks, at the kind of director and senior level, literally not knowing what they were doing. You know, it's very hard to process that, that you have people in these institutions who literally don't know what their own firms are doing. And I, I think it is linked to the question of complexity. And it's also linked to a thing about, you know, what the financial sector means by innovation. Because you're, you're right to use that word, and it's the word they use. And at the same time, you know, for, for the point of view of people listening to this show, 
you know, it'd be quite nice to have some innovations that benefit us. You know, the innovations are always of carving out extra pieces of rent or carving out extra percents from the gigantic flows of capital that happen all around the world. But, but what about innovations that actually benefit us? And I think it's a, an astonishing indictment of the sector that that thing Paul Volcker said. Now, Paul Volcker is no bomb-throwing, you know, weatherman slash hippie slash revolutionary Trotskyite. You know, he was a central figure in, in the global financial system. He's the guy who broke inflation, really, under first Carter and then Reagan. He's a, you know, he couldn't be more of a, a, a capitalist and a free marketer. And looking back over his long career, the thing he said... When he thinks about innovations that have benefited ordinary consumers and ordinary customers, the only, he can think of only one, and it's the ATM machine. And, you know, I know it's funny, but it's also really, really dark that, that that's true, that we sort of half a century of alleged innovation, and, and all we have to show for it is the ATM. Coming up, more with John Lanchester. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with best-selling author John Lanchester. So, what is the net effect for people like you and me, um, or for people who struggle with being able to speak money or really understand? Because uh, I, I don't want to get too dark here, but but part of me is genuinely concerned when I hear things like. Uh, senior executives on Wall Street don't understand what's going on with the own systems that they themselves have helped create. But it's also possible that you can't understand them. When you, you know, the guy, there's a, um, a director of stability at the Bank of England, which is the equivalent of the, of the Fed. And um, I mean, I also, by the way, I love the idea of there being someone called director of stability. I'd quite like to have my own director of stability. <laughs> we could all do with one. And, um, you know, he says when you look at some of the um, the these derivative, these black box black box derivatives as they're called, because the people buying them don't know what's inside them, and nor do the people selling them. They're designed by the the computer geniuses. They have up to a billion lines of computer code. Now the thing about that is actually you can't understand that. There's no um, point thinking that there's no grown up in charge. There is no adult supervision. There's no there's no cop, and. The, I think the takeaway from that is that the, the regulation, you know, it can't tweak and fiddle and adjust things at the margin. It needs to be much more fundamental. And I think it needs to head in the direction more of um, something like the um, the drugs business, you know, the, the medicine business, where products are, products are banned until they're proved safe. It's where it's that way around, where you have to prove that a product can't implode and cause serious losses not to the investors because you know that's, that's up to them big boys don't cry and all that but to um to the to the people who underwrite the banks i.e the taxpayers and i think a, a move in that direction towards a much more sort of simpler model for what um banking is supposed to do would be um you know a positive for, for for all of us speaking of bankers your father was a banker what did you learn about money from him he was. I mean, a very. It wasn't kind of go go. Um, let's use derivatives. Oh, whoops! We've accidentally blown up the global financial <laughs> system. Type banking so popular today. No, it was much more the old deal where you know you looked at someone's business plan, you talked to them, and decided whether or not to lend them money. Which is now um, you know sometimes mocked as what they call three six the three six three model, where you take deposits at three percent, 
you lend money at 6% and you're on the golf course by 3 o'clock. Um, but, you know, it, that kind of banking seems to me fully defensible. You can see the social utility of that. You can see what it does for you and me. You know, that's kind of my mortgages. If I had a business, that's the kind of would be lending me money. And you're getting some exercise with the golf. And you're, unless you use one of those really cool cart things. That's true. Um, but yeah, so he didn't talk much about it, but it, it did give me a sense that I think a lot of people feel kind of put off this subject in advance. They, what I call pre-baffled, you know, they, they've sort of decided that it's impossible to get their heads around it. And because my dad worked for a bank and therefore I knew it was just, you know, fallible people making decisions for, you know, what seemed like good reasons to them, but might turn out to be mistakes afterwards, that it gave me a feeling that, you know, I could get my head around to it, that it's not sort of inherently too complex to to follow i think that was um that was very important for me i think the feeling that i had permission to understand it because i think a lot of people don't feel they do have that permission uh, i listened to a previous interview you had done where one of the things you mentioned was um, your dad's belief that uh, if you don't spend time thinking about money then then you're doing pretty well yeah i remember when i was at college I mean, my dad didn't like talking about money in general but when i was at college he once said to me completely out of the blue have you got enough money? Which was out of character for him as a question. And I remember thinking, because in those days the state paid for education in the UK. So I, so I said, I don't know, I never think about money. And he, he instantly, in a very heartfelt way, said, oh, well, that means you're rich. And I, I often think about that. I've never forgotten it because it struck me as a very profound idea that, you know, what we all want really is just never to have to think about it. Um, for money to be, in effect, solved for us. And so I think there's quite a deep, you know, we, as it were, because we're, we're grown-ups, we have to engage with this stuff because nobody's going to do it for us. And, you know, I deeply agree with the whole Motley Fool project in this respect. I think it's really important to democratise this stuff and give people the tools. And at the same time, in a way, in an ideal world, none of us would devote a second's thought to it. How do you invest your own money? Um, I just do what I'm told, actually. I, 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 I um, had a financial who's, advisor. Who's telling you to do this? I had a financial advisor from a zillion years ago. The first, I mean, I didn't earn enough money to, it wasn't an issue until um, my first book came out and I had a, a few quid. And um, I just you know, did what I was told with him in relation to, um, the, it's a, the British equivalent of a 401k and I just stuck it in there. Um, but I don't, um, I, you know, I don't follow it very avidly, mainly because I have a, a fair, you know, a fairly deep distrust of the industry, and also because the way that the rules, you know, the governments can constantly rewrite rules on savings and pensions and stuff like that, and um, I think it's very easy to always underwrite the element, underestimate the element of regulatory risk in these things. So, the the main thing I, I think about that is I just keep trying to work hard. So. We know there are no real easy answers. I don't think it's reasonable to expect, whether it is intentional or not, that uh, the people behind some of the language we've discussed are, are going to uh, cut down on the obfuscation. Um, with all that in mind, uh, what is one thing uh, that our listeners can do to better speak money, to better understand money? Well, I think, you know, most of your listeners are the people who are already taking charge, I suspect. You know, that I think that, w that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And I think the, cr the, the first step, the crucial step, is, is uh, 
it's a psychological one of realizing that you are the grown-up you know there is no no one's gonna come along and do it for you there's a wonderful old peanuts cartoon from back in the day about that feeling that you have when you're in the back of the car you remember that feeling when you're back in the back of the car and your parents in the front and you know you feel completely safe and looked after and you know where you're going and they're taking care of it and i can't remember who says it what to who i think maybe it's linus or lucy someone says you know the thing is a day will come when you're in the front of the car and there won't be that feeling anymore and whoever he's, he's talking to just says hold me <laughs> and the thing about this in relation to money is we're in the, you know, every single one of people listening to this are in the front of the car uh, but i think the crucial thing is if they're listening to motley fool and following it that they already know it and i think that's the main thing before i let you go i have to ask because in a previous life you were a restaurant critic now there are a lot of we all have guilty secrets chris <laughs> I, I you know there were a lot of uh there are a lot of questions i could ask you about the restaurant business that sort of thing but uh, uh our producer matt greer said that the question I really should ask is, if the next time I go to a restaurant, I want to subtly or not so subtly make the people working at the restaurant believe that I am a restaurant critic, and therefore I may be able to dupe them into getting better service, better food, etc., what should I do? I, the full and complete answer to that can be given in one word, notebook. Because the restaurants are full of people typing away at cell phones and, um, you know, messaging each other and messaging the person who's sitting across the table for them and, you know, updating their Facebook status, photographing the food, all that. So when I was trying not to be noticed, because i have been a restaurant critic twice with a 20-year gap, and the thing that changed the second time, it was much easier to be anonymous because everyone spots a notebook, but if you're typing stuff on your phone, no one can see it. Whereas the only people who write things down in a notebook at a mealtime are professional restaurant critics. And, I, and I've seen it, I mean, you know, many, many times, and all, my peers and colleagues in the business all agree that, you know, the one thing you can't do if you don't want to get busted is take notes in a notebook. We have to wrap up the inter- interview. I, I have to go buy a notebook immediately. The book is How to Speak Money, What the Money People Say, and What It Really Means. It is already a bestseller, so by all means, go out pick up a copy wherever books are sold. John Lanchester, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Remember, you can always drop us an email. Radio at Fool.com is our email address. That's radio at Fool.com. Our engineer is Steve Broido. This week's show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Next week.